In this edition of The Chiefs, our specially convened panel of experts will look back on the pivotal events of the past 12 months and peer ahead to 2023. From the war in Ukraine and the resulting global energy crisis, 2022 has been a momentous year. So what's in store for the next 12 months? Today, I'm joined by three experts from all corners of the globe who will offer their take on the new year. Joining me from Tokyo is Tomihiko Taniguchi, a foreign policy specialist who formerly served as special advisor to the late Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Joining us from Vilnius in Lithuania is Dr. Margarita Shishlagete, Director of the Institute of International Relations and Political Science at Vilnius University. And also joining us is former U.S. diplomat Louis Lukens, who now serves as senior partner at Signum Global in London. I'm Tyler Brulé in Zurich, and this is The Chiefs on Monocle 24. It probably makes most sense that we start with, of course, what has really transpired to be the biggest news story of the year and focus on Ukraine. Obviously, lessons learned, very difficult uh, maybe at this point, but I'm sure there are, there are a few uh, that we can uh, certainly take away. But I think also looking over the horizon as well. And I'm thinking back to a conversation I had with a recently retired U.S. Uh, Army general who was saying that he believes that we'll be in a situation come springtime that Ukraine will have certainly taken back all territory, might have even actually... Uh, gone the distance of also taking back some of Crimea as well. But there was this feeling that by spring of 23, we should be largely out of this conflict, certainly uh, in the format that we've seen now. Uh, Lewis, I want to maybe start with you on that, uh, your view across the horizon. Well, I mean, the analysis that I'm seeing indicates that this may be a longer and more drawn out war and that very much a war of attrition and and not ending by the spring, but probably continuing through much of the next year. I think that Ukraine taking territory back more quickly narrative is in some ways wishful thinking, because I think Russia will rally and there'll be a lot of back and forth and territory that sort of swaps ownership over the course of the next six to eight to 10 months. I don't think Russia will give up Crimea uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I think, you know, that's sort of a red line for Putin. So I I think, I mean, my fear is that we're in this for a bit of a longer haul than sort of mid to late spring. Margarita, just uh, going into uh, the the Christmas period, uh, we saw an announcement out of the UK, uh, the supply of uh, retired uh, Sea King uh, helicopters uh, going into uh, Ukraine, really quite a, a significant move actively a, a NATO member supplying aircraft directly uh, into into Ukraine. Uh, do you see this as a ratcheting up measure in a way also that the UK has uh, really sort of thrown down the gauntlet also amongst other NATO members as well to say, step up supply in a more serious manner, albeit they're aging helicopters, they're helicopters nevertheless? The support is very important and it's always too little too late what is coming to Ukraine There were a lot of military advances made by the Ukrainian armed forces recently, and that gives the ground for the optimism. And I guess that's why this optimistic scenario was put on the table. But the reality is more complex. So, well, although there are military advances on the ground and Ukrainian armed forces are performing quite in a quite a solid way. Uh, the reality on on the ground is a bit more uh, pessimistic, and you have to look at what's happening uh, with the civilian infrastructure and civilian deaths. 
and that's draining Ukrainians. And uh, it is not only the military aid in a form of helicopters, which is crucial, but also the defense of the uh, airspace of Ukraine in order to prevent massive attacks against the Ukrainian civilians and infrastructure, because it takes a lot to build up, to restore the infrastructure, and we are facing the winter. So my fear is that if Russia continues on that, uh, the, on that road, we might be facing some serious humanitarian catast catastrophe in, in, in Ukraine, and that might prevent uh, military advances as well. Tomohiko Taniguchi in Tokyo. I was in Tokyo earlier in the year, almost sort of, you know, several months uh, after the invasion. And there was a discussion I was having with one of the ministries, which was on the point of humanitarian aid uh, already at that point, looking at, at whether this would be potentially a short game or, or a long game for Japan as well. Since then, of course, there's been a, a variety of different flare-ups, of course, maybe more crucial topics within the Japanese neighborhood, which have, have certainly come to the fore. But from the position of certainly the government sitting in Tokyo, how are they viewing uh, Ukraine at the moment, not just vis-a-vis -vis what this means for Taiwan, but also what this means for yeah, Japanese uh, aid, uh, what this means uh, also, just as, as Margarita was saying, thinking about rebuilding infrastructure. What does this mean for Japan right now? Rebuilding infrastructure is going to be very much important if indeed the war has ended. But I don't uh, frankly think that uh, we could have any prospect that this war would end in such a short period of time. I think it's going to be also a prolonged war. Because in order for this war to end rather in a short period of time, it takes uh, Vladimir Putin to give in. And how could we incentivize Vladimir Putin to give up and give in? And I don't think there is any means available for us to uh, push that path. The Japanese government, I don't think, is um, optimistic about the prospect of uh, Ukraine war. Although um, it is uh, common knowledge increasingly that the military assistance, both uh, hard and soft, coming from the UK, US and NATO, uh, is making a tangible difference in um, Ukraine. Lewis, I just wanted to bring you back in and uh, we'll maybe sort of shift geographical uh, focus uh, in a moment. But uh, of course, as the, the winter uh, closes in, uh, on one side, uh, we know that this, this causes, of course, great mobility problems. Obviously, the impact that it's going to have, uh, whether we're talking about power grids, whether we're just talking about just morale, daily morale, uh, when it comes to uh, cities, uh, villages, large large and, and small. Uh, not that um, there there's any type of, of guidebook or playbook to get through this, uh, but what, what is crucial, not just, of course, for, for Kiev going into this, but also when we look at uh, the relationship with, with Brussels, with Washington, Paris, and London? So, I mean, I think we're, we're at some point, we're going to start seeing a more open fraying of the sort of alliance and the cooperation that we've seen so far and the coordination between the United States and, and European capitals. I mean, the Europeans are feeling the brunt of the energy crisis much more heavily than than Americans are. And there's sort of a, a greater sense of urgency and I think of sort of sacrifice in Europe. And I think there will be pressure from, and we're already seeing this pressure from some European capitals 
to bring Vladimir to bring Zelensky to the to the negotiating table and to try to negotiate an end to this war. In the United States, I think the the government's feeling is, you know, the longer this war goes on, the more degraded Russia's military becomes and sort of helps the United States achieve a long-term goal, which is to take Russia off the table as a military threat. So I think there will we will start to see a bit of a fracture between in the unity that we've seen thus far between the United States and its European allies. Margarita, there's been a lot of conversation uh, just uh, even going into this program, I think back to just uh, you know th- these past few weeks. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're looking at uh, the, the Dutch press, uh, the UK press, uh, certainly all over Europe, the NATO, you could say PR machine has been doing a very good job of planting stories about NATO unity. NATO has never been stronger. But as, as Lewis is saying, you know, we might, of course, see, you know, some fraying at the edges, at the core of, of capitals. Uh, you know, if, if you look just within the immediate uh, Baltic region and, of course, uh, th- thinking, of course, of, of new members, uh, Finland and, and Sweden at, at the same time, does this give fresh energy? Is there, is there Are there almost different pacts within NATO where you're going to see a, a more focused resolve? Yes, there was an incredible unity both in NATO and in the European Union, remarkable unity to one aim, to support Ukraine, to make Ukraine win. But the the major challenges that we will be facing in the later stages, first of all, of course, energy crisis will be affecting European Union uh, countries, European countries, and that might affect their willingness to support Ukraine if the the war is getting prolonged. That's one thing. Another important challenge will be when the war is coming to the final stages, how do we define victory? And here I can see in Europe and also between the Europe and United States, there are a number of competing visions, how the victory should look like on one side in Ukraine and how defeat of Russia should look like. So what we are looking for, what's the end state? What do you want to make with Russia? To, um, as um, it was said before, to reduce military threat stemming from Russia. But what does it mean? Because, you know, Russia can recover pretty soon if it's not defeated completely. And the countries in the Baltic Sea region, region, the countries bordering Russia would never be safe. There will be still this feeling of anxiety. So in this part of the world, we see this uh, defeat of Russia, that it has to be ultimate uh, defeat, that it has to lead either to the regime change or we will be facing, you know, new Cold War with the Iron Curtain being put 30 kilometers from Vilnius. Potential, eventual, not potential, Swedish and Finnish um, membership in NATO is very important. Uh, It is very important strategically for us, for the Baltic Sea region. But also it will bring uh, more voices uh, which will be pointing to particular end state uh, in terms of how uh, the victory uh, of Ukraine and the defeat of Russia has to look in in, in future. So we don't see this disunity now. But uh, it will it might become a very serious challenge in, in, in the future. 
Let's uh, focus our attention maybe to uh, the region uh, where uh, Tomohiko Taniguchi is, is sitting, of course, uh, Tokyo and beyond. Taniguchi-san, it's, it's interesting when you uh, hear about this notion of, of NATO unity and then, of course, uh, how it could also fracture at the same time. And you know, we've come to the end of a year. We move into a new year where there is, of course, going to be a lot of focus on what a evolving relationship looks like between Canberra and, uh, and of course, Washington. Then there's pulling uh, London into this uh, as well, and Tokyo. And then there's obviously potentially a broader coalition that, that comes into this. And, and when I think about, of course, key allies in, in the region, and I think about your neighbors, uh, one of your immediate neighbors anyway, in Japan, is this a possibility in terms of, of proper coordination when, when we think about the relationship that Seoul has with Tokyo, for example, you know how joined up will uh, you know forces, but also not you know also foreign ministries and certainly leadership in the region, if we come to some type of blows, whether it's whether it's Taiwan or elsewhere, what what does it look like, and and is it as realistic and, and as joined up as we'd like to think NATO has been? One of the biggest differences between what you see in Europe around Ukraine and what you see in the Indo-Pacific theater around Japan, Taiwan, and so on, is that on your end, you've got huge landscape. But in the Indo-Pacific, it is obviously seascape. So that's the uh, huge difference. And uh, herein comes almost a perpetual importance of the U.S. Navy's role to be played by the United States. So when uh, Japan, under the late Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, proposed a concept of the Indo-Pacific and the security broader framework of Quad, which is a gathering of four seafaring democratic nations of India, Australia, Japan, and the United States, was looking at this uh, seascape. Now, South Korea is leaning uh, toward that direction under the new president. The previous administration was um, in its body language, very much vocal, in bringing itself closer to the continental powers, namely uh, China, first and foremost. But the current administration is uh, seeking a different path and probably making a uh, true rapprochement between Japan and South Korea and uh, joining forces with those nations because South Korea must uh, care as much as many other nations in the Indo-Pacific about the uh, safe passage of a commercial fleet that comes from the Middle East uh, over Indian Ocean through the Straits of Malacca and so and so forth. So we will see. But uh, let me just uh, uh, point out once again that European situation is about uh, the landscape and the Japanese and surrounding areas are all about seascape. And let me just um, add one thing that on the Eastern front, Russia has shown no weakness. The opposite is the case. Russia has beefed up its uh, Vladivostok based uh, naval power. And uh, they're looking obviously at the Arctic sea uh, that's melting. And Japan's neighborhood is actually, I have to say, even shakier and even more unpredictable because for the first time in Japan's modern history, you get uh, Russia, North Korea, and China, none of which has exercised anything akin to open democracy. And every one country of those three nations 
is busy developing nuclear arsenal with missile technologies. So uh, Japan badly needs allies and partners, and uh, that's going to be a continued trend going forward well into the two, well into the next uh, year. Taniguchi Sanami, also you, you focus, of course, on on the the necessity and, and the presence of of the U.S. Navy in the region, the role that they play. I guess you know, unless people are are very sort of keen watchers of of press releases and maybe share prices as well at uh, at major shipbuilders, we shouldn't forget as well though that uh, Japan is not sitting back, nor is uh, nor is South Korea, and of course we can look uh, also a little bit further south to to also Singapore as well, but certainly. You know, Japan now has, okay, they may not call them aircraft carriers by name, um, but uh, they certainly have now vessels which very much resemble aircraft carriers and I believe can also, uh, will be able to take uh, aircraft. Uh, likewise, a similar situation um, is evolving in Korea uh, as well. Do you see this, uh, yeah, this order list uh, continuing? Because I think there's been so much focus very much on Yes, you know whether it's been uh, hyper missile technology and various, uh, very you know, and and a real focus on what Beijing has been doing from a naval point of view, um, but we shouldn't, of course, leave out uh, Seoul or, or Tokyo. Uh, that's certainly true, Tyler. It's been uh, motivated largely by a single source, that is a continued buildup of uh, Chinese naval capacities and their pronounced goal of um, uh, making the vast uh, sea space their what they call uh, anti-access and area denial territory with two or three newly commissioned mega aircraft carriers in operation. If you look at Australia, in response to those activities, Australia is now thinking, uh, obviously, of uh, having and uh, possessing nuclear-powered submarine fleet uh, with the help of uh, the United States and UK. Thus created was this AUKUS gathering. It is a um, phenomenon that you can see across the Indo-Pacific. India is also commissioning uh, some of the newly uh, built aircraft carriers. So that's what's going on. And uh, I, I would say that's what will continue to stay as is. Lewis, when you think about maybe uh, former colleagues uh, sitting at, uh, at, the, at the State Department, uh, sitting at, uh, hopefully not just sitting, hopefully active, uh, also embassies around the world, but particularly if we, if we look at uh, the, the Indo-Pacific uh, region, are you encouraged by, let's say, the, the next generation or even current generation of diplomats when, when, we come, when it comes down to regional expertise, and it's not just expertise, but also relationships um, as well. Because I think one, one theme that seems to you know, keep coming up on various programs, when we do various articles you know, within Monocle's landscape, is it's very hard to find diplomats these days. Uh, you know, the, maybe the golden era of the wonderful post with you know, a decent salary at its time and all of the perks that go with diplomacy not in every country, but in many countries, they've sort of been been demonized now. Or, or the flip side of it is that it's just more interesting to go and work for, yeah, another corporation, which is also going to give you an international lifestyle. But when you look at your former colleagues or current colleagues, um, are you encouraged? I am, Tyler. I mean, I think the State Department has a actually a very good track record of um, recruiting and training diplomats, especially to serve in in countries what we call you know the hard languages, the languages such as Chinese and Japanese and Korean that take you know, two years basically to to learn from scratch to become fluent. And the State Department has always had a very strong pipeline 
of of linguists and 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 area experts. So we have a, we have a really strong cohort in the Foreign Service of diplomats who who have served in that region multiple times, who understand that region well, who know the key players in the different countries. And I think you know we're starting to see that pay off. The, the challenge for the for the U.S. government is that you know Obama tried to pivot to to the Pacific region and. Um, I mean, Trump didn't really try to pivot anywhere. And and I think Joe Biden has also tried to pivot to the Pacific region. But, you know, the reality interferes. And so I think Biden's pivot to Asia has been, you know, sort of put on hold a bit because of the war between Russia and Ukraine. But there is a, a, an acknowledgement and a recognition in the U.S. government that China is the biggest potential competitor, adversary, whatever you want to call it, and that the United States has to focus more military and diplomatic attention on the Pacific region. And I think we are doing that. Lewis, just a little bit earlier uh, in the run up to Christmas, I was in Texas and was there with um, someone uh, from uh, Switzerland's foreign ministry. And it was just interesting being in a casual setting. uh, And and suddenly you meet one person from a big defense company, you meet someone from an emerging uh, defense player. And then the next thing you find out that well, Switzerland, of course, uh, is purchasing the the F thirty five. Suddenly, there's all kinds of discussion about about offsets, and and you have this rather rather interesting discussion uh, going on. And and in many ways, you would never sort of connect Bern with with Dallas, uh, if you can imagine it. But yet, but that y- there you are. And I'm wondering when we when we of course you know, look back, we know that the share prices of the likes of whether you're talking about General Dynamics or, or Raytheon have been doing. In, in, incredibly well um, in in this past stretch. I'm thinking about, you know, what the U.S. on one side has to has to sell. Uh, there's there's of course the, the the very sort of hard component of all of this, but also how much when it comes to a nation thinking about procurement, how much of it is is it in lockstep as well in terms of a broader policy discussion? Because I think probably a lot of people, you know, you might read, of course, that X number of helicopters have been ordered by this country or a U.S. shipbuilder has has won an order. But how much of of a conversation is also then occurring at the State Department, uh, if if you can say? Well, the State Department is very involved in any discussion that involves the sale of military equipment overseas to, to other countries. But that said, they're very involved. But I'm, but I, my sense is that it's more in a reactive basis. In other words, the State Department helps facilitate the sales and make sure that they're done in a legal manner. But the actual sort of decisions of where we send weapons and who buys them are largely driven, I think, by events beyond the State Department's control. And I wouldn't say I wouldn't go so far as to say there's sort of a coordinated policy approach to that. I think it's it is more reactive. I mean, in the as you point out in the United States right now, the defense companies. On the one hand, they're doing very well financially, but they're struggling to keep up with demand. And as the United States and, and NATO allies send more and more of their equipment to Ukraine, those stocks of equipment have to be backfilled. And I don't think the defense companies in America ever anticipated such a surge in demand for military hardware. And and they're you know it, it's it's good for them for their bottom line, I think, because they they're they're making a lot of money, but. They are struggling, I think, to to meet this demand that nobody really foresaw. Let's uh, maybe look to south, at least from where uh, many of us are, are are perched. And if we look to to Africa, this is maybe an interesting place to start uh, with you, Taniguchi-san, in Tokyo. I was um, I was in West Africa recently at a time, of course, when we were reading and, and hearing about, of course, you know, France's demobilization. 
in Mali. And of course, you know, this came off the back of sort of you know, a, a broader, of course, pullout uh, story as well. And likewise, you know, if it's not been a, a total pullout, uh, certainly a reduction in troop and material numbers uh, in many uh, Sahel nations. But what struck me, though, um, in one capital were the amount of uh, Japanese projects uh, that I saw. And these were mostly humanitarian, infrastructure-based, but certainly with the logo of the government of Japan quite proudly uh, displayed on these projects. How much of an emphasis or how important is Japan's role, You're not just in terms of winning contracts, because everyone knows the China-Africa story. Is this you know, a solid piece of foreign policy as well for Japan to make sure that it is blocking, it has a defensive move against China in the region, or is it more about a yeah a pure humanitarian and business play? The phenomenal growth of African economy over the last 10 years has been driven mainly by the investment, a huge amount of investment that came from one single source of China. But now is the time for Japan, and not only for Japan, but other democratic nations to tell African uh, countries, African leaders, that in order for them to build a sustainable economic foundation with uh, reliable governmental institutions upon which they could grow uh, democracy, it takes a lot of time. It is not a short-term project. Tokyo's approach has to be long-term in nature. And um, I believe that Japan has um, done uh, quite a lot from that perspective to help build uh, societal and humanitarian infrastructures across Africa as a long-term project. And uh, it is not not only capital, uh, but also knowledge, know-how, but even more importantly, human capital that must be developed uh, in African nations. And I think there... Uh, There must be much coordinations among uh, G7 nations, for instance, between Europe and Japan. And indeed, uh, Europe and Japan have uh, had a treaty called the Strategic Partnership Agreement. That was the flip side of the Economic Partnership Agreement that was forged between EU and Japan 2018. And now I think it's the time for Europe and Japan to reactivate, really, the strategic partnership agreement in the area, for instance, of helping build African humanitarian infrastructures. Marguerite, of course, you have your own issues, uh, as we were highlighting, of course, uh, at the top of uh, this this discussion in your immediate vicinity. But also, if we look at the South, and, and of course, there's a strange... It's an odd contradiction that uh, we read about, of course, the importance of Africa, the opportunities in Africa, the need to bring Africa along. Of course, the security uh, issue uh, that that lies on the other side of the Mediterranean, the impact that this has, of course, on on urban infrastructure. Uh, when we look at at at, of course, mass migration, etc. Do you see uh, that Brussels needs to focus their gaze as much as Brussels has, has, has had to look east uh, recently, but also to start to, to refocus, as Taniguchi-san has said, you know, and, and of course there have been so many key members involved, but uh, maybe that there needs to be a slightly sharper gaze than there's been in the past at Africa? I guess at the moment the attention is captured by the war in Ukraine, and I think that the maze, most uh, 
majority of the initiatives which are going on in in Brussels are directed towards what's happening in in Ukraine. But uh, as you said very rightly, it is important not to forget Africa. And not only Africa, but also the broader perspective, because what we've seen in this world, and I want to come back to this discussion about, you know, our allies and how the allies have been uh, helping, how the allies have been involved in trying to help Ukraine. But we also have to remember that many of the countries do not share our narrative. And the Russian narrative is quite strong in Latin America, in part of the Africa countries and in Middle East and uh, those countries in these regions do not simply understand us. So we lack the support from the rest of the world. And without this support, we cannot ensure the complete victory of Ukraine, complete defeat of, of Russia. And these things we will be facing in the future. So this Global power competition is happening in on the multiple domains in multiple regions, and Africa is very close to the Europe. And you know we are facing all sorts of challenges related to Africa migration. If there is instability in Africa, we 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 feel it in Europe and quite quite past. So I think that it is very important to invest in Africa on one hand while trying to build the infrastructure, trying to mode barriers initiatives like educational initiatives, which are very important, trying to train uh, African people to participate in the labor market, in the global labor market, ensuring that particular skills are given to them in technologies, in, in cyber but also uh, trying to work with the narratives uh, because, uh, well, for me, very illustrative was one of the episodes that I've seen in, in Mali when the French flag has been torn and the Russian flag was put instead of a uh, of, of French flag. So I think it's very telling and uh, we have to take care of this. But the problem is that with this multiple challenges, with you, these multiple challenges that Europe is facing at the moment, I think there will be any to prioritize, first of all, investing in defense, which is paramount for Europe, investing in the in building capabilities, investing in reconstructing Ukraine, investing in reorienting, re re transforming its energy system, ecosystem in Europe, which is also very important. And then we'll see how many resources will be will remain in getting involved in other parts of the world. We are going to have to leave it there, everyone. I think you've given uh, all of us a very good uh, view, certainly of where we've been over the, the past year, and rewinding a little bit further back, but also, of course, uh, what is needed. I think as we've just been highlighting, the role that private sector plays. Also, I think having all eyes on the Indo-Pacific region, what, of course, we can expect, or certainly how we have to observe Ukraine moving forward, not to mention uh, the time that we spent uh, in Africa, as well. We didn't get to the Gulf in this uh, program, but uh, I want to say uh, thank you very much to uh, Tomohiko Taniguchi, uh, Louis Lukens, and also Margarita Shoshogita. Uh, this episode of The Chiefs was produced by Amos Cyril and recorded by Tom Webb, Adam Heaton, and Desiree Banley. I'm Tyler Brulé in Zurich. Thanks very much for listening. Mm -hmm.